Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Good morning. Good to see each of you here on a nice, liquid, sunshiny day. Glad that you joined us today as we come and worship the true and living God. If you would, take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. And as we uh, continue our series here, our study, we um, continue in this idea and concept of without excuse. Our first week, we um, looked at the introduction, saw the theme of this book, this uh, epistle, this letter that Paul's writing to the believers in Rome that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As we look at this passage, we uh, last week looked at the wrath of God just as the righteousness of God has been revealed. um, The wrath of God is revealed. And so we saw this concept of those who gave up believing and trusting in an immortal God, a deathless God, and they started trusting and believing in these images of of animals, of four-footed creatures, uh, of of even serpents, of 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 those slimy snake horrible, most horrible creature. And all. okay, the scripture doesn't say that, but that's my belief. Okay. And, uh, I can deal with spiders and snakes are just one of those things. If you've ever watched Indiana Jones, him and I get along real well because of the snake thing. Um, but they exchanged all of that ultimately to worship, not the true creator, but something tangible, something that they could put their hands on, something that they could see. And, and ultimately, we see that they, they rejected God. And as the Jew would be listening to that, they would agree and say, yes, those Gentile pagans have gone off the deep end. And so now we are going to continue I think there's a continuation while in our English translation we have uh, chapters and verses, which is good. It helps us to be able to distinguish. I've always said that it gives us the opportunity to have addresses. You have an address to your home. That's how we know where to go. All right. If If you have donuts, you let me know your address and I will come to that address. All right, the, the Bible has given us, the, the, the translators have given us through the years an address so that we know where to go and where we can go and find uh, different truths and different teachings. But this is one long letter that Paul wrote. And as he's writing that, here he, he continues this thought, and, and we're going to continue that in just a moment. This idea of, okay, here are those who have... Um, who practice these things, but there are some of you who not only practice them, but you lift up, you glorify those who do as well. And so now he'll begin in chapter two, this 
focus is going to be a little bit different than the third person plural. He will now make it second person singular. If you have no idea what I just said, you are right with me. We, we are buddies, okay? I'll explain it in just a moment. But before we dig into the word, how about we pray together? Would you bow your head and let's pray? Lord, we are so grateful and so thankful for your grace. As we've sung about this morning, Lord, to be able to come and to pray and to come boldly before your throne, to request that you would hear us today in some ways is unimaginable. That the one who is in control of all things, that has created all things, would look down upon us having created us in your image and desiring to have a relationship with us, that you would allow us to come and to talk to you, to bring our hearts before your throne. And so we do that now, Lord, humbly. We, yes, we come boldly because of the, the, the shed blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We come boldly before your throne, but we also come humbly understanding who you are and who we are. And so, Lord, we ask. We ask that you would enlighten us, that your spirit would show us the truth of your word this morning. Help us to understand your truth better. Help us to understand who you are and how you desire for us to walk with you. Lord, we need your help in order to understand these things. And so I pray, Lord, that you would come and meet with us today. Because without you, we're just a gathering. But with you, we are a church. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time together. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's read, if you would, stand with me. Chapter 2, we're going to read all of chapter 2, 30, 29 verses. Um, not too bad. And if you would, and you're willing and able, stand with me, and we'll read through here, and then we'll kind of dissect this this morning. Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one, on one another, on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patient, patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, 
the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the very what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For the circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now let's walk along this a little bit. The first word there of chapter 2 is therefore. And so you always need to ask yourself, what is, what is it there for? Why is it there? All right, and this is kind of, I've said this before, this is kind of a, a two-way door, okay? It's a swinging door that opens both ways. So if you just look on one side of chapter 2, you're missing why it's there. You need to open the door and you need to look on the other side as well as what you're seeing. All right. So it's referring back to what was said earlier. He says, for this reason. All right. Therefore, refers back to what we've seen and what I even mentioned before. All of these things that people have turned to and they've turned away from God. They've abandoned him. All right. They, and so God gave them over to these, this way of living, this kind of thinking, this debased mind. So therefore, because God has revealed himself to man, remember they're without excuse. This is week number two or part two of without excuse. Because God has revealed himself to man, man chose to reject him. 
living however he wishes, thus those who practice such things deserve to die. It's the end of chapter 1, verse 32. Because of this, men deserve to die. So, therefore, O man, you have no excuse. The beginning of this chapter. Notice again the contrast here. He goes from a very pluralistic of a group in chapter 1. And now chapter 2, he's going to be very pinpointed. He's going to be very specific. You, O man. Well, who is this? I'm glad you asked that question. Who is this man that he's talking to? All right. We're going to see that in just a moment. He's actually going to define that for us, all right, and who this O man is. But the focus turns from, this is what I said earlier, third person plural, they and them, to a second person singular, you and your. So therefore, because God revealed himself to man, man rejected him, and then thus God gave them over to a debased mind, thus they deserve to be dead, to die, because of that, you, O man, have no excuse, he says. Every one of you who judges all, everyone, that term there, all of you who judge. Judge, this Greek word krino, means to pass judgment on or to come to a conclusion to decide upon. And then he continues, you, O oh man, every one of you who judges, and there's this word for, for in passing judgment, and I want to take you back, last week we talked about the different fours, right? And this one means to ultimately say because. You are without excuse, O oh man, you who judge, because, why? Because in passing judgment... On others, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You're the audience hearing this read. You agree with chapter one. You're like, oh, yeah. So many of you walked out of here last week. You're like, preach it, Pastor Aaron. We need to hear that truth. I was just setting you up. Paul is setting them up. He's giving the truth, but he's also setting them up. And he's saying, listen, you are judging those people. And let me tell you, you're without excuse. Because you think you're okay. Because you've set yourself, ultimately, the Greek, the judge, you are the one in authority. Okay. You're the one in authority. You're the one who knows what's right. And thus you are without excuse because you're judging them. You've come to the conclusion. You've decided what's true. Thus you yourself condemn. You pronounce a sentence on. You render a verdict of guilt. Now, I just want to pause here a moment. We don't know... Specifically, is this still the Hebrew? Could this be both uh, the Gentile and the, the Jew believer or unbeliever? Is this the Jews that he's talking to specifically? We know later in our text that we read this morning that, that it is the Jew. He's be, he'll be very specific and call out the Jew 
who, who Paul's writing to, okay? But, but we don't know this section here. All we know is it's very specific, and he's being pinpoint uh, of changing, again, to be more specific and not this general group of, I believe, the Gentile pagans. He's going to focus on the Jewish hearer and how they feel they are justified, okay? I don't believe that Paul, as he's writing this, he's writing uh, this section to condemn the believer. He's helping to teach some doctrine, all right? If he would have been talking to the believer, he would have been more pinpointed as we, as we see in the other epistles that he wrote, correcting wrong doctrine and wrong behavior, he isn't doing that necessarily. I think he's trying to get out, again, the gospel message. And he's writing here. He's writing for his hearers to understand. There are some who are out there, and specifically in this chapter, for the Jew to think that they're okay. And they're okay because they're not as bad as these Gentiles who do all these things that are ultimately an abomination, what the Old Testament would call an abomination. And so... He's saying, ultimately, you who think that you're the judge, you're condemning yourself. You have pronounced judgment even on yourself because, there's that word again, it's the same Greek word of for, because these things you practice, you carry out, you perform these things as the judge. The Greek um, uh, sentence structure is a little bit different than how it's translated here in the English. And it says, because these things you practice as the judge. So Paul is making it very clearly. Listen, you who dislike all of this, you're doing these things as the one who is in authority. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And they would have agreed, right? They're agreeing with chapter 1, and yet they're the judge, and Paul is putting them in their place and saying, listen, you're the one who is also practicing these things. You practice these things. Do you suppose, verse 3 will now be a question, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Remember, again, we were wondering who this O oh man is in verse 1. Well, he just defined the O oh man, oh man or O oh woman here. You who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself. It's not just that you judge them, but the fact that you're judging them and you're still doing them too. You're the one who is the judge, but yet you're doing what you're condemning. You know what that's called, right? Hypocrisy. We'll get to that in a little bit. He continues in verse 3. He says, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God. Do you suppose, there's a Greek word here mean to credit or hold to a view. Do you hold a view that you will escape the judgment of God? That you're going to 
be able to flee from or run away is that term. So you hold a view that you're going to run away from God and his judgment? Verse 4. Or do you presume, the word here meaning despise, to look down upon, do you look down upon the riches of his kindness, God's kindness, God's forbearance, and God's patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I love this term kindness here. And it took me on a little journey because when I brought it up, um, I found that it is a term that Jesus uses earlier in Matthew. And in Matthew 11, verse 30, Jesus says, my yoke is kindness. It's the same exact term here that Paul uses for God's kindness. My yoke is easy. My yoke is burdenless. It's beneficial to you. Paul is writing here and saying, do you not know that God's kindness, his easiness on you is meant to lead for you to repent? That term repent means to change your ways. That the goodness, the patience, the forbearance, you presume, you despise, you look down upon, because ultimately, you're ignorant. You're not knowing that term there. That God's kindness, Christos, his goodness, his benevolence, his easiness that we find in 1130, my yoke is easy, is ultimately to leading you, bringing you, it's carrying you, Think of that. God's great kindness is leading and bringing me to change. We sung all about God's grace today. His grace, thinking about that, and if I'm a horse being led, right? God's grace is leading me just as you would lead your horse on the trail. God's kindness his patience, his forbearance is called to lead, is given to us so that we would change. So people who think that God is a cruel and unjust God, people think that, that God just needs to give people more opportunities, don't have a correct picture of seeing the display of God's goodness. Ultimately, God displays his kindness in ways that are abundant around us. But people are ignorant. Not knowing, Paul writes here in verse 4, unaware on realizing that God is patient and ultimately he is doing it to lead you to change. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impotent heart, 
your stubbornness, your unrepentant, your refusing to turn from self and turn to God, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. A theme of this letter is going to be about God's righteousness. It's an important term all throughout this letter. Ultimately, Paul's writing, because you, not because of anything he's done, but because you, O oh man, are practicing the things that you're judging, because your heart is so hardened that you don't want to listen to what the truth is. Nor do you want to see God's kindness that he's even allowing you to live as a judge who isn't living right. Because ultimately you deserve to die. Because you're breaking the law, which we're going to get into in a moment. God's patient with you. He's allowing you to continue to live. Ultimately desiring that you would change your heart, and follow him. Verse 6. He will render, he will repay to each one according to his works. Works, ergon, is the Greek word here. Now, I want to pause for a moment because we in our evangelical circles become very nervous about this section. That's why I think a lot of people know Romans chapter 1, and they know Romans chapter 3. But we forget about Romans chapter 2, okay? We become very nervous because all of a sudden, what we're going to look at here starts talking about works. Let's look at it, and then we'll talk through it. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing Seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. In showing this idea of works, let me caution us in two things. First, please do not take this section in these verses and say, see, it's about what we do. God's going to judge me. It says it right there. God's going to judge me on what I do. And I would say, yes. He is going to judge you on what you do because every one of us, according to the doctrine of the full Bible, we will stand before God and we will give an account of how we lived our lives. There's two different judgments. One for the non-believer that will stand and give an account for how they live their works and they will be found wanting. They will come up short because, as the Bible tells us, our works are like our good works. The good works, same def definition here. The good works of an unbeliever are like filthy rags. The best that we can bring are disgusting in God's sight. They don't meet his standard. 
the other judgment where we will stand, we as believers, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, believing he died, was buried, and rose again three days later, we will stand before God. And you know what? We will give an account about our works. And God will reward his children based upon how they lived. Did you know that? Some people try to get rid of that. They're like, oh, no, no, no. Not a perfect God wouldn't reward his children differently. Read the Bible. Read the teachings of Jesus. Look at the parable of, uh, of, the, of the workers in the field and the one who starts in the morning and he gets the same payment as the one who just worked an hour. God is a rewarder of those who seek and follow him. And when we look at this gracious and merciful God, he is desiring for those who follow him and trust him, he will reward you. It may not mean that you have a new boat, a personal jet, or you have a Mercedes Benz, or that you have a three-story house. But God desires to reward his children, and one day we will stand, and you and I will each give an account of how our works were displayed. Now, why would Paul write this here? Why is he doing that? He's going to expand on it later, that's why, okay? And he also wants to lay a foundation. He's laying the foundation, ultimately, that belief and works here are not separated. There's no separation. What you believe, okay, goes hand in hand with how you're living it out. Think back to chapter 1. Because they didn't believe in what God had displayed to them, they lived a certain way. Their works clearly showed what they believed. Paul is not dissecting and throwing out. He's not giving us a new different theology that we need to, oh, our works are going to justify us. It's contrary to that, and he's going to expand on that much greater and in wonderful ways throughout this epistle. What he's laying is this foundation that what you believe is essentially what you are living out. And so he's writing to people who are judging those who are very clearly not believers. He's saying, you aren't either because you're judging them and you're doing the same thing. But God is going to reward those who believe and it's going to be shown by their works. Those who by patience, it says, and well-doing. That term well-doing is the same term that he used earlier for works. So good work. Those who are steadfast, the word there for patience, steadfast. Those who are steadfast in their good works. But understand it's not plural there. And verse 7 Good doing good is singular. So it's not about doing a bunch of good works. In fact, it's actually doing good work. You're steadfast. You keep because of this inner belief. 
Why? For the glory and honor and immortality. Interesting. I won't take the time because I'm already losing it. But if you go back and you compare this list, you saw in chapter one, you saw this idea of glory, doxa, bringing praise and those who rejected God and his claim. They didn't do that. And honor. And what were they seeking? They gave up the, the deadless God for these things that die. I just said I wouldn't do it, and I just told you, so keep going. Verse 7, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give life eternal. Verse 8, but, important word there, but for those who are self-seeking, ultimately self-ambition, they're bringing against, ultimately this term is bringing against what God has already said. They're against the things of God, of knowing God and doing the things of God. And do not obey. Apatheo is the word. And anytime you have a in the beginning of a, another Greek word, it's against or not. So we have to not obey, to disobey, or to refuse to believe. The what? The truth. What is the truth? Go back to Romans 1. God and who he is has been displayed. So no man is without excuse. But you don't want to accept that truth. But you obey, same word, that was used earlier in this verse, but now take away the A, you obey injustice, unrighteousness, the very thing that is against God. Remember how God is being defined here, the righteousness of God that has been revealed. No, they're doing the opposite. They're obeying what is unrighteous. And for them will be what? Wrath and fury. Those who do the first part, verse 7, will be given life eternal. But for those who are doing these other things, their works are showing their unbelief. And that they don't obey the truth, but they obey the contrary opposite of God. There will be wrath. Punishment is the term there. And fury, anger, the anger and indignation of God will be poured out. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. There, here in verse 9, you could almost cross out there will be, because it's not really in the Greek, okay? Almost like you could... Continue the sentence here from verse 8. There will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. It means there's going to be affliction. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be trouble and difficulty for everyone who does wrong or bad. People today don't want to know and don't want to be told that what they're doing is wrong. It's not anything new. Paul was saying that. 
So don't be surprised as we stand for truth that there are those people who aren't going to stand for truth. That they do evil. And then he makes this statement that the wrath and fury, tribulation and distress on any, everyone who does this to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's already said that, right? He said that in chapter 1. Salvation has come, right? Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. And he's making a point here, again, to those Jewish hearers, okay, Jesus has come to you and you have this opportunity to believe. Also, I want you to know, Paul is saying, you had this opportunity. You were first to hear it, and yet you have rejected it to both the Jew and to the Gentile. So not only the people in chapter 1, the Gentiles, deserve this, but you, the Jew, too. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. That does good, it's the same root Greek word for work, labor, accomplish. But glory, doxa, honor, it's the same term that we saw earlier that God deserves. And what is it that we see here? The things that God deserves will be also poured out on everyone who does good. Who pours that out, by the way? God does. The world isn't going to give that to you. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul puts a statement, because God is not a partial God. He's not going to play favorites. That is not to go into this whole realm that Israel is no longer God's nation. That's not true. The Jews are still God's chosen people. Thus, it gives credit to we live in a day and age called the church age. You may not be a dispensationalist. You may not even know what that term means. But God put a pause in how he was dealing with Israel and he has offered salvation, Christ, to not just his people. And he isn't going to just pour out his blessing to Israel as they follow and obey him. But to a world, whoever will believe in him, he will pour out his blessing. And he will give his spirit to them. In this church age, which ends at the coming back of Jesus when he comes to rule over his people, the Jews. Didn't realize I was going to go into end time theology this morning, did you? I didn't know either. Verse 11. For God. Same word that we've said before, because, gar. Because God shows no Partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. He, he is helping his readers to understand that just because you're Jewish and just because you think of yourselves as greater than the rest of the world because of 
the Old Testament, what we read of the Old Testament, God's favor and kindness of choosing them. Just because you think you deserve God's kindness and favor because you're a Jew doesn't make you any more special. And verse 12, that word for should continue this whole thought. Because all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. What Paul is going to do here now is he's going to take, and I'm going to move quickly here in this section, and you're like, whew, finally. He's going to take the law, and he's going to take circumcision, which is probably one of the most important aspects of the law for the Jew. And he's going to dissect it and say, you're guilty. All right? Because then chapter 3 is going to enlighten this, this opportunity that all mankind can be saved. But he's got to share the bad news first. And in this, because God shows no partiality, well then, because all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Those who are judging, remember he's talking about those who are judging you're not even carrying out what the law is saying. Yet here, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. They know that, but they don't look at themselves as sinners. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the... It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. Wait a minute. Alarms go off. Ah, we can't work for our salvation. What are you telling us? Keep going. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified for when Gentiles, who they don't have the law. Yet by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Wait, the Gentiles who don't have the law are doing the right things. Hmm. They show, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness that their, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Ultimately... Here are these Gentiles who don't have the law, but they have now something written on their hearts that tells them what is right and what is wrong. And they're living according to that. They're doing the works that the law was intended to help people to do. How can Gentiles do that? Verse 17. But... If you call yourself a Jew, and this is where we know he's definitely talking to the Jew, even though I think my belief is before he's talking to him too. He just makes it really clear here. But if you yourself call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and know his will and you approve what is excellent, what the standard is, because you are instructed from the law, here you are, he's building them up. Okay, saying, man, you have all this access, you have all this knowledge, you have all this, this, this understanding 
of what truth is, what is the law in verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, in some ways, I, I would love to have heard his tone with this. It's almost like he's like, okay, you're a blind, uh, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of those, it says children here, those who are younger or who don't have that, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You have been given all of this, and you have said, we are a light to the world. And ultimately, that's what the Old Testament says. God chose and selected his people from all the other nations so that they would be a light to all the other people. So that they could display who God was. And he gave them the law so that, he knew, so that they knew how to live for him. What it looked like to have one true living God. To follow him and obey him and to trust him. And yet we see over and over they failed in keeping the law. Paul's writing here, hey, you have said that you are the light. You've been given all of this. You have the authority. You have the knowledge. And yet, what does he say? Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And he's going to give a couple examples, just so they don't miss it. While you preach against stealing... Do you steal? Do you say that one must not commit adultery? Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Let me pause there for a moment. Actually, if you do a little history research and study, you'll see that actually the religious Jewish leaders were guilty at times of going and ransacking other pagan temples and taking their gods. It's stealing, first of all, right? But then what did they do with those? Well, we know from the Old Testament, it probably wasn't good, good to have those things around. You who boast in the law, verse 23, you dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. He's quoting an Old Testament passage, and he's saying, this is you. Much like Nathan came to David after he committed adultery, he ultimately had Bathsheba's husband killed because of the sin that continued to keep growing, that he kept trying to cover up. And Nathan comes to him and says, tells this story about this guy who takes somebody else's sheep, even when he has a whole bunch of sheep of his own, and he takes this guy's, his only little lamb, and they loved him so much, and he was so cute and adorable, and this, this bad guy took this, and, you know, because he needed one more sheep to kill, you know, in order to eat, and, he, and David gets in furious. He's like, what is going on? That man deserves to die, and Nathan says, you are that man. That's what Paul is saying to the Jew here. 
you who know the truth, who know all of God's grace and his patience that is leading you to draw nearer to him so that you would live out your belief, your faith, your works would show that, it's very clear that you aren't. And not only are you not doing it, but you're judging those others thinking of yourself as more highly than you ought to. Sounds like another verse, does it not? Verse 16. Well, we'll come back to verse 16 in a moment. Verse 25 continues this whole thought because circumcision indeed is a value. Paul not only tickled the oyster, but now he's going to throw in the knife. Okay? He's given this picture, and I'm sure they're furious at this point as they're reading this, some of the Jews. But he's going to make another simple illustration of something that cuts at the very heart of the Jew, and that's circumcision. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That is a teaching that is contrary to what the Jews believed. All right? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So Paul, what you're saying is a Gentile who's uncircumcised is essentially in God's eyes circumcised. Really? There's no way. Continue. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and the circumcision, but you break the law. He totally switches it and says, listen, you think you're the judge? No, you just wait one day. Because the uncircumcised have the right to judge. Not the uncircumcised unbeliever, but those who are living out the law. Their life displays the good works of God. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Whoa. This is huge. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, but not by the letter. Meaning it's not because you have the law, and the law tells you that you have to be circumcised physically, that you are a Jew. No, a true Jew, meaning the one who is chosen by God is true, if they live out the works of the law, led by the Spirit. His praise is not from man, but from God. When we see all of this, I'll bring this to a conclusion here. Number one, it's this. This is three main big points. Number one, we're all hypocrites, right? If you don't think that you're a hypocrite, we got to have a talk. If COVID didn't show me anything else, it showed me that we are all hypocrites. 
It showed me I was. And if it didn't show you, then you need to do some heart searching. And because we're all hypocrites, none of us have the right to be the judge. Go back. Don't show that one yet. We all are hypocrites, and thus we have no right to judge. No matter how good you are. You are good because God's grace allows you to do what is right. Ultimately, you're good because of the blood of Jesus Christ and your belief in him to make you good. Which Paul's going to expand. But you're good. You're doing the works of God because God's grace is poured on you. Thus, you have no right to be the judge. The second point of our passage here is that no one will evade the judgment of God. Not only are we all hypocrites, but we need to understand that every one of us will stand before God. Both the believer and the unbeliever. Thus, why we need to make sure, how are we living? Are you living in such a way that the faith of Jesus is much like what it says here, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Could it be said of your life that the name of Jesus is blasphemed because of the way you live? I'd be the first to say there are times, yes. Would you admit that? Could it be possible? Yes, there are times that we fail. But that should not be every day, folks. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but should we continue to sin that grace may abound? This idea that we are living our lives in such a way that I have to give an account. Yes, Jesus is my friend. God is your friend. But he is also holy and righteous and just. And you will stand before the almighty creator God. And you will give a real account of how you lived. And you better wake up. And not fall asleep and slumber. And just live this life in entertainment for yourself. This life isn't for you. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've said I'm dead. I've died to myself. I don't want to live according to me. I'm going to live for you, God. And the life I now live, I live in Christ. Is that you? Because the truth is, you will not evade the judgment of God. Which better put you in check and make you think, what are the priorities of my life? Ultimately, then we come to this verse 16 that I wanted to come back to. Because Paul says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God will judge by Christ Jesus. Who's the judge? Ultimately, Paul is writing, You don't have the right to be the judge. Your works don't show it. And ultimately, there will be a day 
When God will judge, and he's judging it by his son. Do you believe in him? Or are you looking to the law to help you? To do something that the law wasn't meant to do. But even if you try to live according to the law, the truth is, as Paul writes here, you're not going to be able to keep it. You're not going to do it. What you do with Jesus Christ will ultimately define how you will live today. Christ is our judge. And I don't know about you, in a holy reverence, I am so thankful that Jesus is my judge. Because as bad as I am, and as filthy are my works, he has called me his child. And I get to live for him. And one day I get to stand before him. And I want him to say, well done, my child. Good and faithful servant of mine. Our lives are sure. What are you trusting in? What are you trying to do in your life? Justify why you're living the way you're living? Paul's writing and he's saying, listen, yes, it, those people are bad over there. And God gave them over to all of that because they rejected him. But you over here who think you're okay, you're just as guilty. You're just as bad. It's because of the blood of Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. And I hope that you've trusted in him. And if you haven't, today, give your heart, give your life to him. Because there's nothing better. For those of you who have given your heart to Jesus, follow him, pursue him with all of who you are. If you've fallen off, get back on. Get back up. It's time to go. It's time to live according to his standard, not yours. His truth, not my truth. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the way you care for us and you love us. Thank you for this passage of Romans 2. And Lord, we are without excuse. Those who try to justify themselves and yet do the very works that condemn them are blind. They're hardened. And while that may not be us, for a follower and believer of Jesus, it humbles us. And it humbles us to give you thanks that you've delivered us from that. Not that we are anything more special than any other person here on the face of the earth who's created in your image, Lord. But it should stir within us a deeper trust, a deeper following, a deeper commitment, a praise that is unlike what the world can offer you. Because we see what you've done for us. We've experienced the life 
that Jesus offers because the spirit of the living God indwells in us. We know there's something different. And yet, Lord, there are days that we struggle. There are days that we allow the world to impede what truth is or how we define it. And yet, Lord, we know that you, you desire for us to live in a way that displays your glory. We can't do it on ourselves, by ourselves, in and of ourselves. Thus, we need your help, Lord. And so we come humbly asking for your guidance that you would help us to take hold of the truth of your word and that we would be livers of it. We would walk and do the works that display who you are. We don't do them to earn your favor. We do them to honor you. We do them so a world can see that you are worthy and the world can see that there is truth. And so, Lord, help us to live our lives in that way. Forgive us for when we don't. Forgive us, Lord, when we seek our own ways. And, Lord, I pray that there would be a great revival amongst us, but even amongst the people of this land. I pray that you would open the minds and the hearts that are so callous and cold to the truth of God and that by your spirit, the truth that we speak and that we display would cause them to seek after you. So help us to be faithful. And even when we're not, May your mercy and your patience and your kindness be on full display for the world to see. We love you, Lord, and we pray for your blessing as we leave from here today. Help us to walk humbly and obediently with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God's blessing as you head out. Of, may God bless you in this week and may you walk humbly with him. Just a quick note, we will have our meeting up here real quick uh, for our wilderness trip. God's blessing on you.